Welcome to the Northeast Christian Podcast. We're so excited that you've decided to check out our weekly messages. We hope that you're challenged and inspired by what you're hearing today. We'd love to have you join us this weekend at one of our campuses or online at northeast.live. For more information on Northeast, visit us at necchurch.org. If you love the Northeast podcast, subscribe to our channel and leave us a comment or a rating in the Apple Podcast Store. Uh, Today we're going to continue in the last installment of a four-week sermon series we started at the beginning of August called Who We Are. Who We Are. Goal of the series is simple. It's to talk about what we know about who we are. Big belief for you here. Big principle. Um, I don't think that that adversity builds your character in the moment. Adversity builds your character over time, no doubt, right? But in the moment, adversity doesn't build your character in so much as it reveals your character. When you drive on a, you know, a rough road, what spills out of the cup is what's in the cup, right? And over the last 18 months, all of us went through a tremendous amount of adversity. So we've got to learn a lot about ourselves. And we've got to learn a lot about our church. Some of it's good, some of it's not so good. And the point of this series is just to rehearse for you the good that we've seen in ourselves over the last 18 months. Some of the the values that have emerged that we just wanna call out and celebrate and also reaffirm and say, this is what we wanna be about here. So if you were here week one, we talked about love for neighbor. That's core value for us, pretty self-explanatory. Week two, we talked about faithfulness to the truth. Again, valuable to us and pretty self-explanatory. Last week, we talked about public witness and that's church speak. No doubt. So if you weren't here last week, you need to go back and listen to it though because it is of vital importance. And today, we're gonna talk about missional intentionality, mission intention. And again, that's church speak, so I'll define it in a second. But before I do, I would like everyone to stand. Would you stand with me? Uh, stand if you're able. If you're not able, that's fine. Um, just cut, You can stay seated. Just put your heart in a place of surrender. And uh, we are going to read together from the scriptures. We stand in order to honor God with our bodies. And, uh, and I hope that this scripture begins to paint a picture of what a life on mission might look like for you. Starting in Jeremiah 29, this is what the prophet says. The prophet says, uh, this is what the Lord of heaven's armies, the God of Israel says to all the captives. He has exiled the Babylon from Jerusalem. Build homes. Plan to stay. Plant gardens. Eat the food they produce. Marry and have children, then find spouses for them so that you may have many grandchildren. Multiply, do not dwindle away and work for the peace and prosperity of the city where I sent you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, for its welfare will determine your welfare. From Jeremiah 29 to Romans chapter 12, the prophet to the apostle Paul. Paul writes, so dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all he's done for you. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind he'll find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship him. Don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. From the apostle now to our Lord and Savior Jesus, John chapter 15 The night before he is crucified, Jesus says this to his apostles. I am the true grapevine. My father's the gardener. He cuts off every branch of mine that doesn't produce fruit. And he prunes the branches that do bear fruit so they will produce even more. 
You've already been pruned and purified by the message I have given you, so remain in me and I'll remain in you. For a branch cannot produce fruit if it is severed from the vine. And you cannot be fruitful unless you remain in me. Yes, I'm the vine, you're the branches. Those who remain in me and I in them will produce much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Wow. Anyone who does not remain in me is thrown away like a useless branch and withers. Such branches are gathered in, into a pile to be burned. But if you remain in me and my words remain in you, you may ask for anything you want and it will be granted. When you produce much fruit, you're my true disciples. This brings great glory to my father. I have loved you even as the father has loved in me. Remain in my love. When you obey my commandments, you remain in my love just as I obey my father's commandments and remain in his love. I've told you these things so that you will be filled with my joy. Yes, your joy will overflow. This is my commandment. Love each other in the same way I have loved you. There's no greater love. Lay down one's life for one's friends. Word of the Lord. You can be seated. Thanks for standing. Thanks be to God for all of his word. All right, so missional intentionality, missional intentionality. Topic of the day, church speak. What does that mean, Tyler? Well, let me start off with the definition. Note takers, uh, here's your definition. Missional intentionality is when Jesus's followers live on mission on purpose. It means just bringing intentionality to the mission that God has given us all. And you better believe it, if you're a follower of Jesus, you've been given a mission. Now, see that hand in the back, go ahead. Yeah, Tyler, what's the mission? Well, at Northeast, we describe the mission like this. You might remember the diagram. We call it the Love the Ville lifestyle. We believe it's our calling to unleash Jesus' love every day, everybody, everywhere in the home, workplace, city, and church. And the reason why I picked those four is because for pretty much all of us, those are the four spaces that we live all of our lives. If you're a student, you might add one more circle. You might draw school and have put a fifth circle in there. But either way, the point is that these are the places and these are the people that God has intentionally put into your lives for you to intentionally love. Now, that being said, I want, I want to give you an observation from my perspective about you. Okay, you guys look up here every week. I get to look out there every week. It's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing. Thanks for dressing up, combing your hair. Appreciate that. Um, here's what I notice. Every week when I look out there, this room is full of incredible, incredible leaders. Like if there was like a leadership capacity competition for churches, on the face of the planet earth, this place has to be like top one percentile. I'm just saying, cause the, the leadership potential in this room is tangible. I can feel it. I'm honestly surprised every week that you guys continue to show up to listen to me because I'm like, these are 10 X the leaders that I ever wanna be. You spend your week living with intentionality in the home and in the workplace by doing a slew of things, strategic planning, goal setting, writing lessons, professional development, measuring effectiveness, troubleshooting, developing staff, reviewing performance, budgeting, financial planning, networking, organizing kids' activities, transporting kids, working out, meal prepping, managing the household, planning vacations, planning dinners, and juggling all the calendars involved. And you do it with such grace. And then you still make it to church on Labor Day weekend. Look at you go. I am so impressed by you, right? But here's my question for you. We bring all of that intentionality into all of our lives 
except for the most important arena of our lives, our faith. So I would ask you just to consider this question today. What would it look like if we were to bring that sort of intentionality to our relationship with God and his mission in this world? What would it look like for us to be as intentional? Some of you are like, okay, Tyler, come on. A strategic plan for, for my, my spiritual formation? Yes. Yeah, that is exactly what I'm saying. That sounds a little bit intense. Yes, exactly. It is a little bit intense. But, but I can't get out of my mind the vision of what this church would be capable of if everyone were to bring that same level of intentionality. To God's mission. You know what they'd call that, by the way? Revival. That's what they'd call that. And man, I believe corporately as a church, we're just a few intentional steps away from a revival, if we just bring it. Now, uh, this heart of intention for intentionality we have, um, we talk about it in a very specific way. You may remember this. We, we talk every probably couple months about our Love the Ville playbooks. Anybody remember Love the Ville playbook? Anybody have a Love the Ville playbook? Okay, what is that you're holding there, Tyler? This is actually just a moleskin with a Love the Ville sticker on it. It's my playbook, okay? You can do your playbook however you want to. You can like have a moleskin. You can do it on a note on your phone. It can be like conversation with you and your friends. Whatever works for you. Maybe you draw pictures, cool, sketch. That's fine, okay? I know for my wife, she likes an opportunity to buy a journal and she takes any opportunities that she can find to buy a new journal. Ladies, this is your opportunity today. Go buy a new journal. But like what I'm saying is, is, is I, I wanna challenge you if you don't currently have one or maybe whew, your Love the Ville playbook's got a little dust on it to dust it off and re-engage in this because this will bring intentionality to your life on mission. What does the Love the Ville playbook do? Well, four steps. Write this down. I'm, this is, I'm giving your homework early this week, okay, y'all? This is your homework. Write this down. One, I want, I want you to take this book, this journal, whatever it is, and I want you to devise one way in which you can unleash Jesus' love in the home, in the workplace, in the city, and in the church. The best way to figure that out is by asking yourself who and how. Who are in those spaces and how might I love them in simple ways? then I actually want you to record it in your playbook. Like write it down. I found that writing it down may be a bit tedious, but when you write something down, when you put ink to pages, there's something about that that solidifies the mission for you. And number three, it allows you to be able to share it with a friend. And you need to share it with a friend because good friends bring accountability. Maybe this is your spouse you share it with. Maybe it's your, you know, your girlfriend. Maybe this is a close friend. Maybe this is your adult kid, small group, Bible study bros, whatever. Share it with a friend and then regularly come back and evaluate it. You don't got to evaluate it every day, okay? But maybe once a week, come back and say, am I loving the right people in the right ways? Who and how? What I think you'll find is that the who stays the same over time, usually, but the how is constantly changing because people need your love in different ways. I promise you, geez, if we could all just wrap our arms around that and make that a part of our devotional life with God, whew, the things that this church could accomplish for the kingdom. Now, I was listening to a podcast uh, this week called the Love Thy Neighborhood Podcast. Has anybody ever heard that podcast, by the way? 
It's a great podcast, pretty popular. Um, it's actually done by some amazing men and women in our city who love Jesus. You should check it out. Lots of good stuff on there. But um, they did an episode a couple of years ago, I was listening this week, um, on, on, uh, on the gospel and neighborhoods. And at the beginning of the podcast, they asked a really interesting question uh, that I want to pose to you today. They said, who is the modern day saint, like patron saint of neighbor love, of living a life on mission? Any guesses? Any opinions? Okay, so I I loved what they said here. This was their opinion, okay? Fred Rogers. It's a beautiful day in this neighborhood, a beautiful day for a neighbor, right? You know it. Actually, I know it better in the Daniel Tiger version because I have young children. Some of you are just now putting that together, by the way. Did you know that Daniel Tiger's, are, anyways, this is another conversation, but Fred, Fred Rogers, Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. For those of you who don't know, all of that Fred accomplished in television was driven by a very, very deep faith in God. He's known for uh, Mr. Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, television show he had on PBS, in which he had really important conversations through like puppets and story with parents and kids about some of the hard subjects in life. He taught young kids how to love themselves. He taught young kids how to handle their emotions and he did it from a place of deep faith. It's interesting, Uh, Fred's uh, childhood living in the home of his parents is actually what inspired uh, his later ministry on television. He had great parents, parents who loved the Lord. Um, They were extremely wealthy. They were like the wealthy benefactors of the town that he grew up in. Um, It's said that his mom, Miss Rogers, bought a uh, a tie for every doctor in town each year. It's also said that each Christmas, her Christmas list was over a hundred names long. The school nurse had her on speed dial. And anytime there was a family in need, she would just purchase whatever that family needed and would send the bill to Mrs. Rogers because she knew that the Rogers family would take care of it. Dad had a similar reputation. Uh, Fred's dad was a wealthy businessman in the community, but he was known for rolling up his sleeves and spending time with the workers on the factory floor. He's also known for engaging in local politics, if you will, in order to work for the common good of his community and solve problems that people were facing. And again, this heart of neighbor, uh, neighbor love all came from the fact that they were deeply in love with the Lord. So as Fred grew up and he made his fame in TV, do you know what he did? He actually took seminary classes at the same time. It is said that, that during his lunch break, He would literally go and take uh, one class at a time in seminary until he graduated with this degree. And then when he graduated, he was actually ordained into the ministry by the United Presbyterian Church. And when he was ordained, if you were to ask him today, he would tell you that he was not ordained uh, in order to pastor in the church. He was ordained to be a pastor through a camera lens in homes to kids. Man, I love that mindset. Like, that's my dream. I pray that over everybody in this room right now. I wish that you would see your life as ordained by God to be the pastor in your workplace, the pastor in your home, the pastor of this city. 
There's this story uh, written in uh, an Esquire magazine about Mr. Rogers. It's an article called, Can You Say Hero? Has anybody seen the Mr. Rogers movie, by the way, where Tom Hanks stars in it? Okay, this is your homework for all of you who didn't. This is great. NFL doesn't start till next weekend. Go home today after, you know, Mexican restaurant, because that's, that's what we do after getting some chips and salsa or whatever. Go home today and watch, I don't can't remember what it's called. What is, is it just a beautiful day in the neighborhood or something like that? It's something, it's, that's what's, okay, just go and Google it. Find the title, Tom Hanks stars as Mr. Rogers. It's a beautiful movie about neighboring. But it's, it's, based, it's based on an article written in Esquire years ago by Tom Juno. He tells this story of Mr. Rogers in the article. It says, once upon a time, there was a boy who didn't like himself. He was born with a bad case of cerebral palsy. Cerebral palsy is something that happens to the brain. Uh, it means that you can't think, or uh, that you can think, but sometimes you can't walk or even talk. So when he was still a little boy, some of the people entrusted uh, to care for him took advantage of him. And they did things to make him think that he was a very bad boy. When he grew up to be a teenager, he would get so mad that he would hit himself. And he would tell his mother on his computer he used for a mouth that he didn't want to live. For he was sure God didn't like what was inside of him. He always loved Mr. Rogers, though. And through a foundation, Mr. Rogers was actually able to come from, Cali uh, from Pittsburgh to California in order to meet him. At first, he was so nervous that when Mr. Rogers visited, he got mad at himself and he began hitting himself. His mother had to take him into another room to calm him down. Mr. Rogers waited patiently. And when he came back, Mr. Rogers made a request of the boy. I would like for you to do something for me, he said. On his computer, the boy answered, yes, he would do anything for Mr. Rogers. So Mr. Rogers said, I would like for you to pray for me. And the boy was thunderstruck. Nobody ever asked him to do that before. The boy had always been prayed for. Ever since, he keeps Mr. Rogers in his prayers and he doesn't talk about wanting to die. And Tom writes, when Mr. Rogers first told me this story, I complimented him for knowing that asking for this boy's prayer would make the boy feel better about himself. But he responded immediately, said, oh, Tom, heavens, no. I didn't ask for his prayers for him. I asked for me. Anyone who has gone through challenges like that must be very close to God. <laughs> now, here's what Mr. Rogers realized. You see it in his life. That's so important. Missional living, the mission of God, is just ordinary followers loving the ordinary people God has put in their ordinary lives. It's nothing special. It's just seeing everyone in front of you as valuable. It's precious in the eyes of God. It's actually believing that God has put you in that home or in this city or in this neighborhood or in that place in order to love those people there on his behalf. It's believing that God has put into your care immortal beings he loves eternally and then living accordingly. What an honor that is. So uh, John Tyson, one of my favorite preachers, said it like this recently. This is a problem with our culture right now. He says, the um, problem with our culture is that we know everything about what we can actually do almost nothing about. And nothing about what we can do everything about. Let me read that again because this is important. He says, we know everything 
about what we can actually do nothing about and nothing about what we can do everything about. What does he mean? He says, well, I can tell you about COVID rates in Wuhan. I can tell you about cell phone tracking and the global economy. I can tell you what the British prime minister's doing right now. But do I know my actual neighbor's name? I'm giving my attention to that which I have no investment in. Instead, I should try to give attention to that which I have investment in. It's paying attention to those who are around me because that's actually how you repair the world. Very few people will be given actual cultural influence and power to shape history. But all of us have unlimited ability to shape the world around us. Now, translation, what's Tyson getting at here? He's getting at this. Your mission has a name. It has a name, but do you know it? In fact, back to our diagram right here, I actually found that it's helpful for me in my playbook to write down the names. To write them down. Like in the home, I write down Lindsay, Palmer, Larkin, Olson. At the workplace, I write down names like Rhonda, Jason, names of our other pastors or elders on our board or other, other preachers and ministers. It was same team, right? So I write down Damien's name from Emmanuel Baptist or, or my friend Jamie who's planting a church in Florida. In the church, I write down names like, like Craig, whose funeral for his wife I'm doing this week, or, or Bethel and Kevin, whose wedding I'm gonna get an opportunity to do, or, or my bro Bible study that meets once a month, or, or Jamil and, and Chris and, and Chip and some of my close confidants who, who care for me and pray for me and I for them. In the city, I oftentimes write down names of places, like my gym or like the Little League team I coach, or like Kentucky Refugee Ministries, because these are places that God has called me to invest right now. Uh, Tish Harrison Warren said it like this uh, recently. She said, we love people universally. That's what we've been called to, right? We've been called to love people, right? We love, we, we love people universally by loving the particular people we know and can name. And that's at the heart of our mission. Now, let me take this a little bit more practical. Here's my theory, y'all. Okay, this is my theory. Um, but I believe that knowing the mission isn't all that hard. It's actually not that hard to come up with the names. You, you actually won't take that much time if you write the names down. It's not that hard to understand that we're called to love them on behalf of Jesus. Like we've been talking about it for 20 minutes. But you're like, Tyler, I get it. We talk about this all the time, right? It's not, knowing the mission isn't the hard part, y'all. You know what the hard part is about this? wanting it actually wanting to do it I mean I would just ask you to honestly consider today what do you really want in life at work what do you really want when you step into the workplace what's your highest ambition is it to bring Jesus love in or is it some other metric at home what's your highest ambition for your marriage and your kids in this in the church uh, do, you, do you step into these doors as a consumer or as someone who wants to be equipped and a contributor to the mission? In the city, do you just benefit off of the great things of living in an awesome place like, like Louisville? Or are you trying to raise the kingdom bar, work for the common good of your neighbors around you? What do you really want? Okay, so here's a practical example of this question that I've been wrestling so hard with over the last uh, couple of years. Right. And I know there are other parents like me who've got kids in the home. So, uh, you know, just, just pray through this with me, okay? As a parent, 
honestly consider this. Is Jesus really your highest ambition for your kids? Like really? See, the reason why I say that is because in our culture, we're trained to have as the highest ambition for our kids, success and significance. That, that's, that's the sort of kids we're called to raise, successful and significant citizens. This is why we've got them listening to like Mozart in utero and, and like on the, the cutthroat travel ball circuit by the age of seven. And then we invest like thousands upon thousands of dollars in their education. We make sure they get accepted into that school, not that school, honey, but we want you in, into that school and then not that major, honey, okay? You can't major in the humanities. You need a real job someday. So you major in, you gotta major in this right here. And then when they get, like get out, we're like got them into this safe apartment complex and we get them an inter- internship at this place. There's so much intentionality and investment, right? There's nothing wrong with that. That's a good thing. But I'd ask you to what end? To what end are we creating these successful, significant kids? I, I get a chance as a pastor to spend a decent amount of time with college students. And you know what I found? As they reach graduation, there is a tremendous amount of anxiety, uh, anxiety around one question. And that's this. What am I gonna do with my life? And do you know what the subtext underneath that question is? What they're really asking is, how do I prove to the world that I'm significant? They've been told their entire lives by our culture that you, you can be nothing less than a world changer if you're going to be significant. And so, man, that's a lot of pressure on a kid. This is the appeal, by the way, of social media. You can get the likes, you can get a quick dose of significance just like that. I have, I have been wrestling with this, y'all. So, so, so back to Tyson. Again, he's, he's one of my favorite pastors. And for the last two or three years, he's been chronicling his journey of intentionally discipling his teenage kids. I mean, he actually just released a book a couple weeks ago called The Intentional Father. Every father with a kid in the home, you need, you need this book. Just book and read it. A lot of practical stuff in there. Um, basically, I'll, I'll sum up a lot of his thinking for you simply in Tyler's terms for you. Basically, his premise is for your kids, we, we sh- you should have an intentional discipleship plan. And you've got to own it parent owned. The church cannot own the discipleship plan for your kids. The, pa- the youth pastor can't own it. We can facilitate it and we'll do everything we can to facilitate it, but it, we can't own it. You've got to own it. And when I'm thinking through this, it just hit me like, what would it look like if from about the age of, of five to 18, I just got really intentional with my kids through, through school? And I tried to direct them towards Jesus. That was my number one ambition and investment. Literally two years ago, I took an entire day off work and I just prayed over this. And I wrote down four questions that honestly have started to serve as my guide as Palmer's come of age and he's now in kindergarten. And I'm thinking through these things with him. Here are my four questions. I'll share a little bit of my playbook with you. Take it or leave it. Maybe, maybe it's helpful for those of you who got kids. Each year, I wanna just reevaluate this when it comes to each of my kids. One, what truth do I wanna teach them about Jesus? For Palmer, we're starting with the basics. He's six. This is the truth we've been teaching him this year. The McKenzie family, we follow Jesus no matter what. We follow Jesus no matter what. It's been easy to give him some examples about how hard it is to follow Jesus, by the way, over the last year, okay? So it's been an easy teaching point. We follow Jesus no matter what. Second question, what experience can I share with my kid to build relationship? Because building relationship is, man, that is 
currency and trust. If you, if you want to be able to discipline and speak wisdom and have a lifelong uh, connection with your kids in terms of discipleship, you gotta build that relationship. So, so what trip can we go on? What experience can we have? in order to build that up. Well, we went to Chicago actually a couple months ago, me and Palmer alone. Um, we caught three Reds Cub games at Wrigley. The Reds won all three of them. And they're well on their way to probably not making the playoffs and blowing all of our hopes, but that's okay. That's okay, maybe it's okay. It's okay, it's okay, Tyler. It's okay if they don't make the playoffs. But we went and watched the Reds and the, and the Cubs. Um, that was the fun part for dad. He got a Joey Votto home run ball, by the way, um, which was fun for dad as well. But his favorite part was Legoland. And in the liminal spaces between baseball games and, and Legoland, we just talked. We talked about how he's starting school. We talked about bullies, being around kids who are different and believe different, respecting teachers. Just we talked. And sometimes I could tell it was really connecting. And then other times I'd give him like a 10 minute sermon in the car and he'd be like, dad, can I have the iPad? I'm like, okay, maybe this is, maybe I'm bad at this. But, but, but we, I try, we, and the point, important thing is we built relationship over the course of those few days. Another question I'm asking is what rhythms, what rhythms can we habituate to cultivate intimacy with God? So like right now, every morning before he goes to school, we read a quick Bible story from his kid's Bible and we pray about it. Five to 10 minutes, probably makes me 30 minutes late for work, but I'm sitting here thinking to myself, shoot, worth it. If we, if we can pull this off for several years in a row, this is gonna be worth it in the end. And then the last question we're asking is how can we, um, or uh, what can we do to learn the value of self-sacrifice, cross-shaped living? For Palmer, that basically just looks like right now, explaining to him why he has to wear a mask in school. I mean, like nobody likes the mask thing, right? But I can teach, use it as a teaching point to say, this is how we sacrifice and love our neighbors around us. And when we love on God's terms, he's gonna provide for us. He'll provide you the resiliency. He'll help you make friends. Let's just depend on God, keep a positive outlook. He's gonna get us through this. When we do the right thing, we're faithful to him. He blesses that. Now look, I am not a perfect father, but I want to be an intentional one. I do. And I've come to believe this. If over the 15, 20 year period, you got kids in your house, you make no other disciples other than the disciples that you call son or daughter. That'll be all right with God. But is that your highest ambition for him? Here's another one. Okay, this is more for a broader audience, okay? In your career, is faithfulness a higher value than effectiveness? Really, is it really? Another book for you, um, Rich Stearns wrote a book recently called Lead Like It Matters to God. I need to get you guys like a works cited page for this, for this, um, for this sermon. Because we got movies, we got books, and you should watch and read them all. Um, Stearns wrote this book, Lead Like It Matters to God. And, and in it, he makes an incredible argument. Um, he says, in our culture, we're discipled towards what he calls outcomes-based leadership. What's that? It's measuring success based on superior results, numbers, size, dollars, fames, uh, fans, market share. This is how most of us measure success in the workplace. But in so doing, oftentimes we sacrifice on the altar of success, our family or our faith, our character, our core values. So this is what he writes, so good. Uh, he says, I can't imagine God saying to me one day, well done, good and faithful servant for those 20 consecutive quarters of earnings growth. Or way to go, Rich, on becoming the CEO at age 33. You killed it. 
Now, it's far more likely that God will speak to us about how we led and how we lived. How do we embody the truths and values of the kingdom of God? How do we tangibly show his great love for people in our daily conduct? Great way to shift the conversation, right? So here's what he goes on to say. He says, you know what's better than outcomes-based leadership? Values-based leadership. Because one focuses on what you produce while the other focuses on how you produce what you produce. Now, look, I could go on asking you guys all sorts of questions about this, you know. Do you want it in the home? Do you want it in the workplace? Do you want it? I, can, I, can, I love being Tyler Coach. Do you want it? Do you really want it? Show me you want it. Five more, you know, like, nah, but we could, we could do that. Um, but, but to close, I wanna make one last point and I'm gonna make this point at the risk of invalidating everything I've set up to this point because this is how the gospel works. It just kind of flips things upside down. Knowing the mission is not the hard part, right? Wanting it is. But I believe from the bottom of my heart that you can't just white knuckle a desire for God's mission into your heart. You can't just say, I'm gonna want it, I'm gonna want it. Just make me want it, God. You You can't do it like that. The only way to instill a deep desire in your heart for the mission of God is to actually aim for something else other than the mission. And you know what that is? Intimacy with God. You aim at that, the rest takes care of itself. This is what I believe. A desire to live for God comes from a life spent with God. If you abide in the vine, you'll bear fruit. Just like we read earlier. John 15, it's like it just comes natural. Jesus said, remain in me, I will remain in you. For a branch cannot produce fruit if it is severed from the vine. And you cannot be fruitful unless you remain in me. Yes, I'm the vine, you're the branches. Those who remain in me and I in them will produce much fruit for apart from me, you can do nothing. And it just hit me like a ton of bricks this week. Cause I'm a doer. I'm a pastor, right? I'm like a doer for the, like, like we're the Love the Ville church, right? And so we've got to earn for ourselves a reputation as the Love the Ville church. Let's do, 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 serve, go. You know, like this is, this is me. This is my mindset. And it's just, man, it humbled me. You ever um, have, have like these times in your life where you're like reading your devotion and praying, but also there's a sermon and then also you're talking about something with a friend and it all kind of comes together and you're like, oh, God's telling me something here. And just, boom, it punches you in the gut. You ever have those moments where it all comes together? So it's happened to me this week. So I was reading my devotional, Sky Jathani devotional um, called Immeasurable. We're excited. Um, immeasurable. Uh, and, uh, and this is what he said to pastors. He said, there's this important truth that ministers need to hear as much as anyone. God does not need you. No, God needs me. You, do you think it would be possible for God to continue to grow his kingdom here at Northeast Christian Church without Tyler? He needs me, right? No, Sorry. come on. God does not need you. He wants you. He did not send his son to recruit you to change the world. He sent his son to reconcile you to himself. Your value to God is not in your effectiveness it's in your presence. What a pertinent truth. I, I just gotta come to realize, sermons are not forever. It's what I do, but someday when Jesus comes back, I'm gonna need a new job. Love the Ville outreach, it's not forever. There won't always be homeless people. There's gonna be a time when the justice initiatives, when uh, you know, the refugees settling, when the prison ministries, when all that is no more, praise God. 
Kids ministries are, are not forever. Intentional discipleship plans for your children. All that, none of that's forever. The great commission is not forever, but life with God is. And when we get that in its proper order, it's interesting how it all flows together. We have been given two great commandments, love God and love neighbor. And what I found is that the second flows from the first when we get our identities right. Get another quote here from Tish Harrison Warren. I love this. It's just so real. Uh, she said, uh, whether we're children or heads of state, we sit in our pajamas for a moment, yawning, messy hair, bad breath, unproductive, groping toward the day. Soon we'll get buttoned up into our identities. Mothers, business people, students, friends, citizens. We'll spend our day conservative or liberal, rich or poor, earnest or cynical, fun-loving or serious. But, she says, as we emerge from sleep in the morning, we are nothing but human. Unimpressive, vulnerable, newly born into the day, blinking as our pupils adjust to light and our brains emerge into consciousness. But as Christians, we also wake up each morning as those who are baptized. We're united with Christ. And the approval of the Father is spoken over us. We are marked from our first waking moment by an identity that is given to us by grace, an identity that is deeper and more real than any other identity we will do that day. Before we begin the liturgies of our day, the cooking, sitting in traffic, emailing, accomplishments, working, resting, we begin beloved. My works and worship don't earn a thing. Instead, they flow from God's love, God's gift, God's work on my behalf. I'm not defined primarily by my abilities or marital status, how I vote, my successes, failures, fame, or obscurity, but as one who is sealed in the Holy Spirit, hidden in Christ and beloved by the Father. Man. And I'll tell you this, when we appreciate that identity, we initiate mission just naturally. Can I remind you of your identity today? To close. Here in just a second, Richard's gonna come up and he's gonna lead us in a time of communion. Before he does, I wanna read to you a short story from one last book, uh, Philip Yancey's book, uh, What's So Amazing About Grace. Anybody read that one before? It's a good one. Man, again, we're excited, it's coming. Um, go check this book out today. In the book, he does a retelling of the story of Luke 15 and the prodigal son by telling the modern story of a prodigal daughter. This is my story, this is your story. Yancey writes, a young girl grew up on a cherry orchard just above Traverse City. Her parents, a bit old fashioned, tend to overreact to her nose ring, the music she listens to, the length of her skirts. And they ground her a few times. She seethes when they do. I hate you, she screams once at her dad when he knocks on the door of her room after an argument. And that night, she acts on a plan that she'd mentally rehearsed scores of times. She runs away to Detroit. She concludes that it's probably the last place her parents will ever think she ran off to. So she takes a bus and goes there. Her second day in Detroit, she meets a man who drives the biggest car she's ever seen. He offers her a ride, buys her lunch, arranges a place for her to stay. He gives her pills that make her feel better than she's ever felt before. And the good life continues 
for a month, two months, even a year. The man with the big car, she calls him boss. And he teaches her a few things about men. And since she's so young, they pay a premium. She lives in a penthouse, orders room service whenever she wants. Occasionally she thinks back to the folks at home, but their lives just seem so boring to her. After a year, the first signs of illness appear. And it amazes her how fast her boss turns on her. Before she knows it, she's out on the street. She's still turning a couple of tricks, but it's pay enough. And all the money goes to support her habit. And when winter blows in, she finds herself sleeping on metal grates outside. One night as she lies awake, all of a sudden, everything about her life looks different. She no longer feels like a woman of the world. She feels like a little girl lost in a cold and frightening city. She begins to whimper. Her pockets are empty and she's hungry. She needs a fix. So she pulls her legs tight underneath her and shivers under the newspaper she's using as a blanket. And in that moment, something jolts a synapse of memory and a single image fills her mind. It's of May in Traverse City. God, why did I leave? She says to herself and pain stabs at her heart. My dog back home eats better than I do now. She's sobbing. She knows in a flash that more than anything else in the world, she just wants to go home. Three straight phone calls, three straight connections with the answering machine. And she hangs up without leaving a message the first two times, but the third time she says, Dad, Mom, it's me. I was wondering about maybe coming home, catching a bus up your way, and it'll get there about midnight tomorrow. If you're not there, well, I guess I'll just head on to Canada, start over. Takes seven hours for a bus to get from Detroit to Traverse City. And during that time, she realizes all the flaws in her plan. What if her parents missed the message? What if they've written her off as dead? She got to apologize to her dad, but what if he can't forgive her? Will they accept this new bruised and battered version of herself? She looks at the tobacco stains on her fingertips and she wonders if her parents will notice or if they'll even be there. When the bus finally rolls into the station, the driver announces in a crackly voice over the mic, 15 minutes, folks, that's all we have. 15 minutes to decide her life. She walks into the terminal, not knowing what to expect, and not one of the thousand scenes that have played out in her mind prepare her for what she sees next. There, in the bus terminal, stands a group of 40 brothers and sisters and great aunts and uncles and cousins and a grandmother and a great-grandmother there to boot. And they're all wearing party hats, blowing noisemakers. And taped across the wall of the terminal is a huge banner that reads, Welcome home. And out of the crowd steps her dad. She stares through tears, quivering in her eyes, and she begins her apology speech. Dad, I'm so sorry. I know that. And her dad interrupts her. And he says, hush, child. We've got no time for apologies. You'll be late for the party. A banquet's waiting for you at home. Yeah. Jesus, people, this is our story. It's my story. It's your story. We are all prodigal daughters in need of a second chance. This is our God. We have a heavenly father who has no time for our apologies because he's prepared a banquet for us. And this is our mission. 
to be a part of the family of God that welcomes the lost in and shares and celebrates God's love with one another. So I would encourage you today, run to God, live with the Father, be loved by him, abide in the vine, and you will bear much fruit.